Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight. All right, so let me just tell you that. Let me tell you a few things. First of all, I've been thinking about this show since November of last year. Uh, and it took a while for me to realize that uh, senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan is the person I needed to have produce this show. Now, let me tell you why I've been thinking about it. And then we've got two terrific guests for you today. I'll bring the first one aboard after this. So I have to tell you two quick things. One of them is about a woman I'm going to call Margie. And so Margie is somebody I know. Not that well. My partner knows her better. And Margie's somebody who's been involved in, like, democratic politics, progressive democratic politics for, you know, pretty much her adult life. And she's been on the board of some, you know, pretty impressively progressive democratic organizations. Margie's also really interested in New Age stuff and, you know, healings and psychic stuff and seances and channeling. And she's always been interested in that kind of stuff. And But then recently, on one occasion, she was talking to my partner, and somehow or other she mentioned the fact that it's quite possible that the Sandy Hook shootings didn't really happen, which is kind of a deal breaker for us. I mean, it ought to be a deal breaker for everybody, but, you know, we I, – I know some of the Sandy Hook parents. Um, my partner knows – the, some of the government officials who were there, who were present, who saw the bodies. I mean, it's obviously a, a falsehood, but it's also just an abomination to say that it didn't happen. But I was sort of, it bothered me because that particular narrative, right, that Sandy Hook is a quote unquote false flag, is a narrative which I associate with and which kind of emanates from the right and particularly the gun fancying right, right? This is you know, the whole idea is this is a plot to take our guns away. So they pretended to kill a bunch of kids who never got killed. That's sort of the Alex Jones right wing driver of this. So why is this very nice new agey kind of woman saying it? And, and is there a way in which once you begin to question authority, you start to question all kinds of things? You know, I mean, question authority was just a great bumper sticker. It doesn't really say question authority, but also you know, ultimately, you have to accept the truth of certain things. It's too long for the bumper sticker. Okay, so that's thing one you need to know. But so I was thinking about that. It was bothering me. And then in November of last year, I read this piece in a publication called Lit Lit Hub. It was written by a guy named Mark Deary. It was about the so-called QAnon shaman. His name is Jacob Chansley. He's the weird guy with the horned helmet and the bare chest and the tattoos. You know the guy I'm talking about. Um, And it was specifically about his writings. And uh, the writer Mark Deary described it as a weird syncretism of New Age spirituality and right-wing conspiracy theory, which scholars of American religion have dubbed conspirituality. 
This, after all, is a man who describes himself in his back cover bio as a shamanic practitioner, QAnon digital soldier, New Age energy healer, and God-loving, country-protecting patriot of the USA. So now I had a word for it, conspirituality. That's that sort of dark side of the moon place where certain New Age spirituality practitioners shake hands with or at least share some common cause with the kind our, our our stereotype of the conspiracy theorist, right? Which is the right wing, possibly evangelical Christian, bucolic, agrarian commune inhabiting, you know, person who wants to overthrow the government or something. But see, I think that I, for most of my life, had personalized this and kind of said, "Well, this is a problem over there on the right. It's not people like I know." But it suddenly occurred to me through the vehicle of conspirituality that, yes, the very nice person that you see on the yoga mat next to you once a week in yoga class, the person with whom you enjoy discussing the properties of turmeric, might be a person with some QAnon stuff going on. I then found a podcast where I could think about this even more and find out that it's a much bigger problem even than I had suspected. That was called Conspirituality. Uh, I mean, the podcast was called Conspirituality. Joining us now is one of its three hosts, uh, Julian Walker. Uh, he's currently co-writing Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Public Health Threat with Derek Barras and Matthew Remsky. Uh, he's taught yoga in Los Angeles for 27 years. So welcome to our conversation. Thank you, Colin. Great to be here with you. So after that long, windy preamble, I mean, maybe say what I'm leaving out here. If you have to explain, which I'm sure you do on a thumbnail basis, what your podcast is about, what is conspirituality? Well, first of all, that was a fantastic introduction. Uh, since we've been doing the show, we have received so many messages from listeners who've told exactly the kind of story that you started with uh, and leading in with Leonard Cohen's fantastic song about exactly this topic is, is perfect. Um, conspirituality, as you said, is a portmanteau of, of spirituality and conspiracy theories. Originally, the term was coined in 2011 by uh, Charlotte Ward and David Vosch. So way back in 2011, they were doing religious studies research and recognizing, oh, this phenomenon is happening. I think the really crucial question for your listeners to understand right away or to, or to sort of wrap their heads around right away is to ask, what do darker, more paranoid conspiracy theories that we tend to associate with the right and that the, the research shows tend to be more male-dominated in terms of who gets interested in them, what does that have in common with the more light and love, yoga and wellness, whole foods, you know, shopping, organic food eating, acupuncture visiting, uh, spiritual type that tends to be more female and tends to have a more positive outlook on the world? And I think the answer to that question is that both groups see themselves as outsiders. Both groups uh, go in search of alternative sources of knowledge and ways of discovering what is true and look for hidden patterns that show them a sort of revelatory vision of reality, not unlike uh, people who are, are deeply involved in religion, that the rest of the world doesn't know about yet. So there's a sense of waking up to some special truth. Right. There's very much that, what if we haven't been told everything? We don't mm -hmm. know everything. So 
It's also, Julian, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, let's call it for a moment a disease, a disease of the Internet. There's a way in which uh, if, you, if you threw a red switch on the wall and digital life went away, this would be a very different phenomenon. It might not vanish. Richard Hofstadter would suggest that it existed well before the Internet. But there's a way in which, and let's get to a specific example, all right? So uh, back in 2021, uh, Sean Korn, who's kind of a big deal in the yoga world, started to get worried, started to sort of notice there was like a lot of... QAnon language kind of surfing, uh, surfacing in the yoga community. And when you look at that pretty closely, like, where's it coming from? How, what hole is it getting through to get into the yoga studio? It seemed an awful lot like it was Instagram influencers, people who have suddenly an awful lot of influence without necessarily any credentials to go along with it, right? Absolutely. I think that the uh, the internet and especially social media just poured gasoline on the fire of these types of claims about what's really going on in the world and what's been hidden from us. Because suddenly now, through the magic of the algorithm, through gathering together in groups of like-minded people and getting into echo chambers where you are just recycling the same sorts of ideas that get reinforced and keep actually accelerating and intensifying, uh, now this stuff can spread far and wide. And so what happened really in... In the summer of 2020, uh, a researcher named Mark Andre Argentino noted something that he started referring to as pastel QAnon, which is that the the ideas of QAnon that most people are sadly very familiar with now, and the QAnon shaman, as you pointed out at the beginning, is sort of the standard bearer in terms of bringing it prime time, sadly, on that terrible day. Uh, the ideas of QAnon started to organically be packaged by influencers who you might think of as mommy bloggers or uh, trans channels who were you know, talking about what the Galactic Federation or the angelic realm had to say about what's going on in the world, um, lifestyle uh, influencers, all of these sorts of figures who you wouldn't normally think of as trafficking in these kinds of ideas were creating really palatable memes and videos with a, with a lovely aesthetic that appealed to this new audience. And the main uh, theme that ran through all of this was saving the children, which is a very uh, appealing idea to just about anyone, but especially to women who you know have a, have a big heart and are, are interested in personal growth and making a difference in the world through their spirituality. And so that was a that was a huge uh, sort of next turning of the wheel in terms of how this how these two worlds came together. Yeah, and I do think that the di- digital the digisphere, you know, is a place where things go on that haven't gone on before. You have YouTube, where people could begin create people who used to maybe be on their public ass- access channel, you know, some some local public a- access channel with, that had eight viewers or something. <laughs> Suddenly, you can go on YouTube and you can make a video about the idea that maybe the world is actually flat and that's being concealed from you, and maybe that video will get somebody to algorithmically be shifted over to another video that's about how 9/11 didn't really happen the way that you've been told, and 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 there's this kind of cascading effect, and and beyond that, as you guys have documented in the podcast, you know, after YouTube came TikTok and TikTok, you know, is bigger, faster, more viral, does everything YouTube ever done, ever did, but faster. Uh, and and so you have this kind of unvetted information that's moving around really fast. And then the other thing that social media is really good at is helping people find one another. So you could have a pretty esoteric, unorthodox set of beliefs and maybe 
you know, heretofore have known only 10 people who might even be willing to listen to you. Uh, now you might be able to find 50,000, 100,000, maybe a million. It seems to me that is, as you say, gasoline on the fire. That's exactly right, Colin. I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? So what the internet has done is it's taken all kinds of marginalized people or people who are sort of in small percentages in terms of their interest groups, uh, whether those interests, you know, we would judge as being positive or negative, uh, true or false, it's allowed them to find one another and band together. And I think one of the important things to remember is there's always a new generation of people who have not yet been exposed to, say, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories or claims that various events like, you know, tragically Sandy Hook uh, maybe somehow were, were staged and was a false flag operation. There are new people who have not considered that maybe the earth is flat and NASA has been lying to us all this time. And so social media uh, and, and sites like YouTube become this massive clearinghouse for every single idea or theory that's ever existed that people can suddenly access who m might otherwise have not had access to it. And people who had existed in small enclaves suddenly can say, well, there's only 10 of us in each city. But when we start banding together all over the world, that's a lot of people. Right. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit later about one of the big people that you've covered a lot, who's now a doctor who's currently running, I think, for public office in Maine. And I was reading an article from a Maine newspaper this morning that said that there are little QAnon enclaves popping up all over Maine, uh, from from you know, Moosewood down to Agunquit. Suddenly there are there's all this stuff going on. And and so. I think another thing that's important about this and that I think is important about the work that you guys are doing is I th we tend to think about this in terms of us and them. You know, I'm, I'm a nice person. I know other nice people. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know the kind of people who do this stuff and I'm not involved in the world that might lead to, say, an invasion of the Capitol or a rejection of COVID science. I don't know anybody like that. On the other hand... And this, we're going to about to open up a Pandora's box here. I want to, I think, preface this by saying I've gone to chiropractors. I think I've actually gotten some real benefit uh, from sure. from chiropractors. Uh, I think if I my back were acting up a certain way again, or my knee, uh, I would probably go back to the same chiropractor I went back to last time because he's really good. But it really is true that as a profession. And you guys have done several episodes about this, I think, but there was one in particular that I listened to. As a profession, it's kind of a mess in terms of introducing a lot of this stuff, this anti-scientific stuff that rejects basic kinds of public health and immunology. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about all chiropractors, because as you say, I think there are plenty of people practicing that modality who can really help you when you need it, give you that that adjustment that you know you've, your neck or your low back or what have you may have been needing, and you feel better afterwards, and that's great. The problem comes in when, and I think this, this, is, this is true for a lot of alternative medicine, is that they're already existing in the margins of uh, how they relate to evidence. And so if the, if the evidence claims of the discipline are pretty weak or fuzzy, then often that leaves room to say, well, the reason why we can't show you evidence for why X you know, alternative modality works is because there's a conspiracy against us from big pharma. So there's already a little bit of, a, of an opening there to think about the world in that way, which is motivated by, you know, I want to believe that this, this treatment modality works. 
And so what you see a lot with chiropractors is a certain percentage of them will also be anti-vaccine. And so while you're sitting in the waiting room, there might be a little folder. I've, I've had this experience on the end table next to you that has horror stories about all of these poor babies who had terrible side effects from vaccines and you should not vaccinate your kids. So that's just one example of how you start to see the shading over into this territory. Yeah, and I found uh, a terrific piece on a, a site called Science Based Medicine uh, about the fact that, for example, Judy Mikovits, who's the pandemic person, uh, spoke to the Chiropractic Society of Wisconsin and was kind of their featured speech speaker at something called VaxCon 21. Uh, this same article documented the fact that the, there's a lot of kind of anti science, anti immunology, vaccines are bad uh, courses that chiropractors can take. Uh, for credit <laughs> in That's various right. states, that, that you can yeah. actually enlarge your academic credentials as a chiropractor by taking uh, the kinds of courses that would lead people to reject basic kinds of vaccine health. And the thing about all of this, even the example that you just gave, that with with people on both sides of the spectrum here, right? So the influencers, uh, the doctors, as well as their their patients and the followers of people online, the, the motivation comes from a really good place. It comes from a place of wanting to be open-minded. It comes from a place of saying, well, let's, let's really uh, find out for ourselves what's true, right? Let's really try and help people. And it comes from a place also of recognizing, you know, medical establishment has made a lot of mistakes and a lot of people have been marginalized and felt disregarded or have even been very poorly treated historically by the mainstream medical community. And... So, so people are asking questions about, well, how I, I want to feel better about my choices in terms of my healthcare and in terms of what I do for my kids. And I want to understand why uh, some of these treatments maybe haven't worked or some of these perspectives have left me feeling anxious. And along comes someone else who says, well, I've got the answer to that. And I've got a, a, a new model through which you can think about health and empowerment and uh, actually, it's it's run through with a kind of spirituality that makes you feel good, and the and the person talking to you is treating you in a very kind and empathic way, and so what they're saying just feels right. All right, so we're going to grab a quick break here. Julian's going to stay with us. Uh, we'll come back. Uh, we've got more to tell you, and unfortunately, you're going to hear one element we haven't talked about: guns get blended into this. Who's into crystals, into healing? Sensitive New Age guys Who like to dress like Richard Simmons Sensitive New Age guys Who are hard to tell from women Sensitive New Age guys Who like to cry at weddings Who think Rambo is upset Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back with Julian Walker, co-host of the podcast Conspirituality. Uh, he's currently co-writing Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Public Health Threat with Derek Barras and Matthew Remsky. He's taught yoga in Los Angeles for 27 years. And since we just uh, cited the title of the book, Kat, I'm going to be calling for A1 here. Uh, let's talk about one of the figures uh, who gets covered a lot on the podcast uh, and, and discussed a lot. That is Christiane Northrup. Uh, we can talk a little bit about who, who she might be, but let's hear first a little of what she sounds like a one there's never been a vaccine like this it's an rna vaccine it is uh, what's called a trans infection it will fundamentally change people's dna and what i don't like about it even more than the usual thing about the toxic uh, metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5g uh, this one has the usual um, non-human DNA, like, you know, monkeys, maybe fetal cells, pigs, whatever. And so it begins to make us what's called chimers, C-H-I-M-E-R, in- introducing non-human DNA into our bodies. All right. Well, without being too pejorative, there's a whole lot of crazy in that quote. But um, Julian, we should begin by saying Christiane Northrup comes to this. She has made a peculiar transit from being a kind of beloved and respected Deepak Chopra type medical figure uh, to who she is now. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I, th- I would say she's even she starts from a place of being even more uh, credentialed and established and having an, ex- an existing career as an OBGYN, um, very, very good education, a much beloved sort of feminist health advocate and activist, wrote a best-selling book called uh, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. So I think all along there's been an emphasis from her on let me tell you some of these alternative perspectives about how you can empower yourselves. And so we see how starting from a place of really being well-intentioned, starting from a place of addressing legitimate grievances that women may have about the healthcare system, um, she gradually became more and more uh, in love with bringing in alternative perspectives. And so she's long been she's long flirted with anti-vaccine attitudes, especially uh, with regard to the human papillomavirus uh, vaccine. And then what we started to see when the pandemic hit is that she just kept going further and further. And that trajectory has continued all the way through to today. So the clip that you played is sort of a peak moment of her crossing over into claiming that the COVID vaccine is going to turn you into a half human, half animal chimera. And she's long, long before that was talking about how it was, there was a tracking device in there and it's going to turn you into a slave and it's going to know everything that you're doing and upload it into the cloud. So that of course, as you're saying, is sort of peak crazy. But as time has gone on, she has she was with the Capital Six insurrectionists in spirit while she was water fasting. Uh, she's talked up to her half a million followers on social media about how they need to learn about gun control laws and about who their local sheriffs are and to get ready for a kind of revolution and, and supporting militias. 
She's talked about shooting doctors in the head who might approach any child that she loves with the COVID vaccine. So it's it's a pretty dark turn. Yeah. And so I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to bring it up. There was a recent, uh, fairly recent episode, uh, I think, about sort of guns and the way in which guns and spirituality have engaged in some very odd marriages. But you mentioned her, you know, and it's almost as if once you buy into three or four fifths of kind of a spiritual conspirituality worldview, you're you're probably going to pretty be pretty easily able to take one or two more steps. I mean, there's sort of nothing about the early resume that you cited that would necessarily turn her into an advocate of free access to firearms and a rejection of sensible gun control. It's more that she changed universes, right? And in this universe, that's just something that you can pretty easily pick up. That's exactly right. And and of course, it remains bewildering. No matter how much we, we analyze it, there's still a mismatch there that's hard, I think, for anyone to wrap their heads around. The, uh, the, the journey that she has taken, would we could not have predicted uh, five or 10 years ago. We could predict some things, but, but the extent to which it keeps escalating and getting amplified, and this is not just her, it's typical of what we've seen with a lot of these spiritual influencers is the trend is increasingly to the right. And I think there's a few different reasons. One reason is th- they get into their own kind of echo chamber where everyone is affirming one another and then adding a new conspiracy theory into the kind of uh, potluck of, of grab bag ideas and beliefs. And it all kind of fits together in a certain way because our freedoms are being taken away from us and they're trying to force the vaccine on us. And this is all really a plot and they're coming for your guns next. And what do you know? Critical race theory is being taught in the schools. And now they're going to tell us that gender isn't real. And it all starts to become this worldview where before they may not have identified as right wing or as being particularly pro-gun, but over time they're getting transformed into these new versions of themselves. And the the gun piece is, is just the latest uh, version of that, where we see now these these influencers, Christian Northrup hasn't done this, uh, but the, certainly the male ones have been posting videos of themselves at the gun range, pictures of themselves holding guns, uh, wearing T-shirts that have particularly gun-positive political messaging. So I'm going to bring up another touchy subject, which is that, um, and you guys may have addressed this. I've listened to a lot of episodes, but you guys you have like 200 episodes, so uh, I might have missed this. So... Um, you know, there's a name that comes up a lot when we're talking about people like Christiane Northrup, and that name is Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey is probably the yes. person who did the most to introduce Christiane Northrup to the American public, not as some kind of wacko anti-vaxxer gun nut, but as, as you said, a person who might be eager to acquaint women with other health and medical mm-hmm. possibilities. Mm-hmm. But it's her. It's Dr. Oz. It's like, you know, the, the, it's there's a way in which Oprah, who's, you know, a very benign and highly respected figure, is been kind of a gateway drug for a lot of this stuff. That's right. I, I think that there's one thing that I should say here, which is that I do not want to create the impression in the conversation with you that anyone who goes to a chiropractor or starts, you know, going to a local yoga studio mm-hmm. or has some sort of alternative ideas about, you know, say organ cleansing or juice fasting or something, they're, you know, look out because they're on a fast track into becoming right. far right, you know, conspiracy nuts. That's not really the case. You look at someone like Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she's done an amazing service in terms of uh, her, her book club and, and the types of guests she's had on who've talked about taboo subjects and opening people up to talking about their emotional suffering and their trauma and how you can maybe integrate things, practices like meditation into your therapy. 
these these sorts of things, I think most of us would be on board with as as positive uh, actions in the world. And yet, at the same time, the 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 way of exploring alternative forms of knowledge that starts to lose rigor, that starts to say, well, if the claims that are being made, if if claims are being made that appear to have a scientific basis, but then the evidence is not really strong, instead of saying, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't say that, people, it's easy to, to make that little nudge over into saying, well, maybe science just doesn't understand it yet. Or maybe the science is being suppressed by the people who, who are making money off of you thinking and believing otherwise. And that's where someone like Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz really have played a negative role on the cultural stage because they've encouraged that sort of cognitive uh, vulnerability that we all have in their massive audiences. And that's where I think you really start to see uh, negative outcomes arising. You know, there's a couple of other big names that um, names that people would know, maybe better than they would know some of the uh, the other people who I think are important in this conversation, just because they're so influential and they're they're kind of similar and they've talked to each other on a regular basis. One of them is Joe Rogan, and the other one is Jordan Peterson. And yeah. I would link them together, Julian, partly because they also represent a kind of person who's politics are a little fuzzy. Like, we know Jordan Peterson is sort of a conservative thinker, but he's not a conservative thinker like you would pick up a copy of the National Review and find something that he wrote, and you'd be kind of familiar with these almost boilerplate, uh, you know, hard right concerns. He's he's dressed up in in the costume of this, you know, I don't know, indistinct Canadian intellectual, you know. Mm-hmm. And Rogan comes out of mixed martial arts and comedy and stuff like that, and he professes to have no politics whatsoever. Although I think that's increasingly clear that that's not true, but th- they seem to become kind of almost clearing houses. Uh, for for this kind of information. That's exactly right. So I would say, think about someone like Joe Rogan. He's sort of the Oprah for the, the his specific male-dominated demographic, right? Guys who are really into working out, into being healthy, into taking responsibility for their lives in that way, who are curious, open-minded. Joe Rogan has a long history of being really, really into conspiracy theories. And over time, he's, he's actually uh, transitioned out of that. He's not as conspiratorial as he used to be. Um, and, and with someone like Jordan Peterson, you, when he bursts onto the public stage in a more international way, certainly in a way where he gets more of a, an audience in the U.S., I think he very deliberately was, was not uh, overtly political. He was more psychological. He was more talking about how, how young men need to have discipline and find direction in their lives and feel a sense of, of self-worth. And he's showing up in his three-piece suit and really playing this sort of Renaissance man, intellectual Canadian who's very eloquent and who's going to make references to Jung and, and ancient mythology and things like that. So again, I think I think with with both figures, you see with with both Rogan and Peterson, you see that there's a there's now a certain demographic that's different than who Northrop and Oprah might be reaching, that is is in this internet age. Lots of content being continuously pumped out, lots of interviews, lots of different ideas, lots of long form conversations, which is really, you know, where Rogan has has changed media, that these these conversations that can go on for three hours at a time where there's no fact checking, there's no editorial oversight. He's producing maybe four or five three hour episodes like that every single week, week in, week out, year after year. And a lot of irresponsible stuff ends up going out. And, and Rogan runs the gamut from having 
uh, really credentialed uh, academics and, and authors who have a lot of interesting things to say on the show, and then having a slew of, of anti-vax quacks who are who are making outrageous conspiratorial claims. And at no point is is he pushing back or fact-checking them. There hasn't been some sort of ahead-of-time editorial process of really figuring out, like, how are we going to position ourselves in relationship to this person who's clearly an incendiary figure? So it's it's all uh, it's it's just a sign of the times, and it it it, it d- does force us to have to grapple with how our cherished ideas of free speech hold up to this new landscape, and whether or not our brains were evolved to be able to dig through this much information and try and figure out what's true and what's false. Yeah, with Rogan also, there's the myth of both sides, but the truth is he'll have. Robert Malone or one of the, you know, notable anti-vax stocks on five times. And then I'll have Michael Osterholm, who's like a legit, you know, scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's not you can't you can't do that and say it's both sides because you're really featuring not, one guy yeah, and not another. And uh, not only that, Colin, when when Osterholm is on, he'll 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 push back. Yes, he has a lot of questions, but yeah, I've noticed the same thing. Hey, Julian, yeah. we have to stop here because we've got Sarah okay. Kenzie coming out. This has been a terrific conversation. I do want to double down on something that you said because I totally feel that way too and I wouldn't want to give the wrong impression. Yes, if you go to a yoga studio, uh, if you go to an forest workshop, uh, if you're doing juice cleansing, if you love your chiropractor, that doesn't make you some kind of nut or anything like that. Although watch the forest stuff because, uh, <laughs> because there's some other stuff going on there. But, you know, it doesn't make you some kind of nut. But I think your point is it do- also doesn't mean you're home free, that you're in this completely safe place where nobody's going to be throwing subtly or not so subtly some of these ideas at you. So just, you know, remember to ask lots of questions, I guess. Uh, the podcast is terrific. It's called Conspirituality. It's co-hosted by Julian Walker. Uh, he and his fellow hosts are writing Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Public Health Threat. Thanks for being with me. Thanks so much. A pleasure. We are back. Uh, it's time for me to say some thank yous. First to Kat Pastor, who's our um, technical producer here on the show. As I mentioned before, senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this show. And I think that's one of the reasons we have the next guest that we have. She's been with us before. Uh, Sarah Kenzier uh, is the author of three books, including The View from Flyover Company, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Her new book, They Knew. How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent will be published in September. She's the co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. So, Sarah, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, I don't know how much of the preceding conversation that you heard, but this is sort of an interesting bookend to it uh, in the sense that one of the points that you're making in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of if you wanted to conceal an actual conspiracy, you couldn't do much better than to populate your immediate universe with a lot of false conspiracy theories so that it would be much, much harder to spot the needle in, in the haystack. You make kind of a distinction between conspiracy theories and actual conspiracy. 
Yes, we have a number of actual conspiracies that, you know, we have witnessed through court documents or confessions, things like the Jeffrey Epstein operation, things like the attempted coup on the Capitol on January 6th. I define a conspiracy as a plot, uh, a secret plot by a group of powerful actors um, to collaborate on some kind of mission, usually against the public good. And they're not uncommon. You know, that's what the mafia does. That's sometimes what intelligence agencies do. You know, that's what the civil war was. Like the definition of conspiracy is fairly standard and broad. A conspiracy theory is what happens when you have a society with a lot of corruption and very little transparency from officials, which forces people to fill in the blanks and try to get to the bottom of things where it seems like they don't have adequate information. Uh, you know, the shooting for, for of JFK is a, you know, a classic example of this. And I think that that's gotten worse lately uh, for a lot of reasons your previous guest laid out, um, the role of the internet, social media silos, weaponized um, propaganda, but it responds to a genuine erosion of uh, social trust and of integrity in American political life. And that's just fertile ground um, for the most malevolent actors to tread. You know, I find this book really, really fascinating. But also as I'm reading it, I can kind of feel the ice creaking and cracking beneath my feet too. I mean, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So one of the things that you write about and you, I think, document very well is the degree to which there was um, a conspiracy or call it what you will. There was kind of a combined conscious effort to minimize the seriousness of the pandemic, to deprive of us of information that we needed to make good decisions early on in the pandemic uh, and you, as you point out, you know, we ultimately had the Bob Woodward book where it turned out that Trump in early February knew that COVID-19 was going to be more serious than the flu, more strenuous, I think he called it, more dangerous. Uh, but in his public utterances, he continued to sort of say the opposite, basically. This is not as bad as the flu. There was a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, the, the problem, the thing that, I, that makes the ice creak for me, and maybe for you too, Sarah, is that you know, I, I agree with that and I believe that and I, I agree with the whole thing about Nancy Messonnier being removed and replaced with Deborah Burks, who was willing to be kind of a useful idiot uh, for a while anyway. But when you sort of say COVID conspiracy, you know, there's the other one that the vaccines don't work and Bill Gates wants to inject nanobots into my veins so that 5G can activate them and turn me into a zombie or something. It's when you say COVID conspiracy, you're really talking about two different things. And I, I worry that one starts to maybe seem like an endorsement of the other. Well, what I discussed in the book is that people were so beaten down after institutions lying to them over decades, in particular, big pharma, you know, something like the opioid epidemic and the Sacklers and, you know, false claims that uh, certain medications were healthy and so forth. Like that trust had already been eroded. And so, you know, during a pandemic when people are very traumatized and very afraid, I think it was natural for people to be worried about the vaccines. I think then making the leap that Bill Gates is going to microchip you and turn you into a, you know, a hotspot for Wi-Fi, like that's taking it to another level. Like that's not based on anything, you know, rooted in evidence. But I think the worries are justified. And I think the best remedy to this, um, you know, kind of conspiratorial talk is to simply get the answers in a straightforward way. Like, for example, I think if the Sackler family had been held accountable, 
uh, if Big Pharma were held accountable for all of the crimes that they committed against the American people, people would have more faith in pharmaceutical industries. If our representatives were fighting for us against these industries, we would have more faith in our representatives and so on and so forth. It's the lack of data, the lack of transparency, the lack of trust. That's a problem. And there's actually, you know, there's a book written about the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and the warning from that historian, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but he basically said, if you're dealing with public health at the time of a pandemic, you have to be 100% honest all the time. You can't sugarcoat anything. You have to tell people a consistent and honest truth, even if it's unpleasant to hear, because if you lose that level of trust between the public health officials and the public, it will be prolonged and people will suffer Suffer and people will die. And I think that that's what we've seen in a more overtly malicious way from the Trump administration and in a more negligent way um, from the Biden administration. Yes, because and particularly in both cases, but I think this is kind of the problem with the Biden administration. If there's a gigantic problem that has been hanging around for a really long time, that probably has political and electoral consequences for you. So you're kind of better off saying, well, it's not that big a problem or just talking about it as rarely as possible. There's a line in your book that I think really kind of sums up a lot of this, uh, which is, of course, people will flock to conspiracy theories when nearly every powerful actor is lying, obfuscating, or profiteering off pain. You know, there's just a way in which people just don't feel that they have access to the truth anymore. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And so I think it's natural for people to form theories. You know, theories are different than facts. And I think some of the the tarnishing of conspiracy theorists, the labeling them uh, in a pejorative negative way, comes from the type of conspiracy theorists that either claims their theories are facts or just absolutely makes something up, you know, like Alex Jones did, something malevolent, something, um, you know, intended to stoke violence based on absolutely nothing. Like, that's just propaganda. Like, I wouldn't even put that in the territory of conspiracy theory. Like, that's just propaganda wrapped up with a conspiratorial uh, veneer. But I think it's very natural for people to have, um, you know, questions like throughout the 1970s and part of the 1980s. This is not a strange thing to do. You know, it led to the Pike Committee, the Church Committee, uh, the Pentagon Papers, lots of investigative journalism, the resignation of Richard Nixon. There used to be a real spirit of critical inquiry aimed at authority, aimed at challenging power. And now folks are so conditioned to think that if they're questioning power, even when people are blatantly carrying out criminal or conspiratorial acts right in front of them, that they that they're going to come off bad. They're going to come off hysterical, alarmist, uh, etc. They're so worried about their reputations that they're not concerned with people's pain. And that's something that that worries me quite a lot, because I think one of the qualities we're missing right now is empathy and an, an ability to, you know, understand what people are going through, what brings them to the point that they, you know, either would embrace something just sheerly propagandistic or would have merited, I think, distrust uh, in failing institutions. So I think the other thing, you know, I was talking to Julian about that kind of us versus them thing. They're bad. We're not bad. Um, you know, and, and there's a way in which we tell ourselves that story over and over again. You've written a lot, both in this book and elsewhere, about Jeffrey Epstein, you know, and, and I think about that and I think about the 2016 election because Jeffrey Epstein's connection to Trump is there, but Jeffrey Epstein's connection to Bill Clinton is also there when you combine that with a lot of the things that were also alleged against Bill Clinton, things which Hillary Clinton back in the day characterized, amusingly enough, as a vast right-wing conspiracy. 
I mean, it's it seemed to me even in 2016 that we were really being offered the choice of two different flavors or shades of depravity uh, as opposed to a, a somewhat more positive versus negative choice. But I, I think there's even a discomfort from people like me, people in the press, to really kind of go there because we're so worried we're going to give ammunition to, say, critics uh, of, of Hillary Clinton or people who want to uphold Trump. We have a result in mind that we want, and maybe it makes us ignore certain details. I think that's true. But one thing to remember about 2016 is that there is an almost uniform refusal in the mainstream press to address Jeffrey Epstein at all, even though he was directly connected to both of the candidates, or at least, I guess, indirectly connected to Hillary Clinton. He was directly connected to Trump because uh, Trump was sued in court by a 13-year-old girl who said that Trump had raped her after Epstein procured her. Uh, Epstein and Maxwell did. And, you know, this went to court. The victim was then threatened uh, with death. So was her lawyer. The press conference they were going to hold was canceled as a result of that. It's extremely, extremely serious. The Clinton connection is Bill Clinton riding on Epstein's plane uh, multiple times, you know, and that's also documented. Uh, To my knowledge, there's not a connection between Hillary Clinton um, and Jeffrey Epstein, but they're certainly within the same social circles. All of these people are. I think this all should have been covered in real time. I think the American people are owed the truth. And this is very much not a partisan matter. I mean, if anything, you know, people are always looking for like, how can Americans unite? You know, what things do we have in common? in our divided nation. This is something we all have in common. We all hate Jeffrey Epstein. We're all, you know, revolted by what the Epstein Maxwell uh, child rape trafficking operation did. We all feel like we don't have the full answers to that and why so many powerful people, you know, Prince Andrew, Bill Gates, Ehud Barak, Alan Dershowitz, et cetera, are connected to this group and which has espionage ties. You know, it's, it's a giant story that is continuously played down. Um, when he, you know, allegedly committed suicide in 2019, there was sort of a flurry of articles from people who admitted, yeah, I knew this was going on the whole time. I knew this was going on for decades. And I said nothing just because either they were afraid or they were afraid of what it would do to their reputation. That is such a lack of courage. That's such a lack of sympathy for the victims. And I think in cases like that, the victims should always come first. You know, people shouldn't be defined in terms of their importance by what position they have or how much power they have. You know, everyone should be treated as as a human being. And I think we have this kind of blind reverence of authority that's really corrosive. And it's only led um, to a lack of accountability in general for criminal elites like like Epstein. So I'm talking to uh, Sarah Kenzier. Her new book is They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. So part of the way into this book, Sarah, I burst out laughing uh, because it turns out you and I have been doing the same thing uh, in roughly the same period of time, which is re-watching old X-Files episodes. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing this with my son. We typically watch late at night, which makes you even more paranoid. paranoid. Mm-hmm. If you're watching you know, closer to midnight, you get the more this stuff seems to be true. Um, but uh, you know, it is. I have my own set of reactions to this that I'm still processing, but but you write about this uh, in the book. Uh, and So say a little bit about you know what you and Spooky Mulder have in common, or, or however you want to go at this. 
Yeah, there are times where I've said things, I think, on TV in interviews and then wondered if I actually lifted it from the show. Because when I was re-watching and Mulder's like, you know, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. And I'm like, oh, God, that's like probably in an essay I wrote. You know, that was a show that came out when I was a teenager. I was very into it. I have all my exiles trading cards. I, I was, you know, I knew some of the folks who made the show. Um, but I think that, you know, the 1990s were a very interesting time because it was after the end of the Cold War. It was before 9-11. And it was this time where a lot of Americans were reconsidering their history and kind of in part because the internet was, you know, new and newly available, uh, you know, digging deeper into the past about things that we were certainly never taught in school, like the existence of MK Ultra or Area of, you know, 51 or what have you. And so the X-Files prompted a kind of spirit of inquiry, uh, which I think is good. And it's also just, you know, it's an interesting show. It's, it's a fun show in certain ways. It's a very dark show in others. Um, you know, as an amazing see that there are competent people working in the FBI. So, you know, you got to give it credit for that. Uh, what I wrote about and they knew was actually more the short-lived spinoff show, The Lone Gunman. Um, and that's because in March 2001, The Lone Gunman, you know, which was based on three characters from the X-Files, uh, the, the first episode was about how a plane from Boston was hijacked to ram into the World Trade Center and bring it down and then spur wars um, that the American government would profit over. And the reason I brought that up is not to say, you know, that they inspired the terrorists or, or that, you know, it was an inside job, et cetera, but that all these claims of, oh, we just didn't have the imagination to envision the prospect of the 9-11 attacks that Condoleezza Rice made, Bush made, Rumsfeld made, all these others were nonsense. I mean, it was on TV six months before, imagined. And so this sort of dearth of political imagination that people like to market as savviness, I think is really dangerous. I think a lot of folks out there that are demonized as conspiracy theorists actually are full of imagination. And sometimes that imagination can be used uh, for bad things, but often, you know, these are people who are on the ball and they're not taken seriously uh, because they don't match the kind of stereotype of respectability that people with power um, often had. But yeah, I encourage everyone to go, go rewatch those X-Files, at least seasons two through four. And um, it starts <laughs> to go downhill after that. And go find the Lone Gunman DVDs as well. Right. Well, well, we probably have to stop there. We're running out. Although I just do want to say one thing, which I think also Mulder kind of sums up a problem that we've been talking about the entire time, which is that he believes in, in, in asking questions and he believes in some conspiracies, which it turns out are real conspiracies, particularly the government trying to conceal stuff. But he also is prepared to believe lots of other things, the kinds of things that the Conspirituality podcast is probably kind of in the business of debunking. And he'll call up the lone gunman and go, you know, I've got this situation and they'll go, oh, that's been happening for for years, where every 10 years in Manitoba, they kill a janitor and turn him into candy and people eat it. And you go, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> the other I gotta stuff, say, yeah. though, I, you know, if I had to choose between Fox Mulder and Robert Mueller, I'm 100% team Mulder. I'd rather have the inquisitive person who maybe goes a little too far than the person who, you know, just completely drops, drops the ball in the American public. So. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. We've been talking to Sarah Kenzier. We always like to have her on. The new book is They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. If everything that we've just said makes you want it, you're going to have to wait just a little bit. I think it's out in September. Uh, but great to talk to you again. And thanks once again to Betsy Kaplan uh, for putting up with me and putting up with this idea I had. Thanks once again to Cat Pastor. And thanks to you for listening. Believe it or not, now that I'm done with this, I have to go record another uh, episode that's about rom-coms. And believe me, that's going to take quite a mental and emotional shift. <laughs>